This is Open to Hope Radio, featuring Dr. Gloria Horsley and her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley, coming to you on behalf of the Open to Hope Foundation, dedicated to those who are looking for hope after loss. Now, here's Dr. Gloria. Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Well, good morning from California, Heidi. Good afternoon from New York City, Mom. Well, we have got a guest on that I know is so interesting to you because you've never met him, right? But you guys are connecting in a lot of ways. Well, I have never met him at all, and I just found out about him last week, and I'm going to introduce him in a minute. His name is Dr. Daniel Rudafossi, and it was very interesting because I had somebody that is an expert in grief and loss talk at my class at Columbia University her name is Dr. Christiane Manzella, and she kept talking about this guy named Dr. Daniel Rudafossi. And I went, wait a minute. I just heard about him. He's going to be on our radio show, and I can't wait to have a mom on because he is not only a former New York police officer, but he's also a psychologist and a professor. He has a really fascinating background. He's like a rock star. He is. He's very, very well known. And like I said, she kept referencing him in the class. So I'm excited to hear what he has to say today on dealing with trauma. So do you want to talk about, uh, introduce him and his model? He can probably tell us about his model, but you can, why don't you introduce him? Sure, I'll introduce him. He's on the other other end of the line and he is here in New York City with me, not in the room, but in this uh, borough. And his name is Dr. Daniel Rudafossi, and Dr. Dan is a retired sergeant in the New York Police Department. He is a licensed psychologist and a professor. Dr. Dan offers his evidence-based approach toward identifying, confronting, and healing from complex trauma syndromes using his eco-ethological existential analytic approach. He is the author of A Cop Doc's Guide to Understanding Terrorism as Human Evil and Cop Doc on the Job. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dan. Thank you so much. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on the show, Dr. Dan. And your publisher, Baywood, were the ones that got in touch with me. And Heidi and I, as I said, we've been doing the show and, and our website and things for the last five years and uh, working on the, I did a little bit with Heidi on the 9-11 project uh, with Columbia University uh, in New York, and, and we never crossed paths, but here we are now. Wonderful to be here, and like I said, I feel very privileged to be on your program, and with the enormous amount of great work and experience um, and ingenuity that you both bring to the table, and I'm able to join you um, for this short time. So now, Dr. Dan, as I was telling you, you have an expert in dealing with the police and trauma, and one of the reasons Heidi and I were very excited to have you on the show is because we have a lot of bereaved people that are listening to the show and are fairly newly bereaved. And I think you probably know more about bereavement and particularly trauma because we have people tell us things like, uh, I was doing CPR with my spouse or whatever, with my child and and they didn't survive and that keeps running through my head and and I I just don't seem to be able to deal with it. And, uh, you know, I, I think you probably have a lot with that, with helping people deal with trauma in the police department. Yes. Um, what, what you just discussed is, is what officers deal with, not necessarily with their own children or spouse, um, but with dealing with people that they just need 
and what I describe as a psychic quantum moment when it's a shocking type of a loss of trauma, something that they, they themselves may not have been used to or trained in, um, you know, particularly in the field or the ecology in which they work and survive in, which I would call ethological drive. So, yes, um, dealing with those type of um, losses, trying to save uh, the kid who's choking on a bone, um, and, as you said, too, not being successful or dealing with a situation with a train accident where somebody falls in between a train car and may be cauterized and still alive but very much dying and um, beyond medical hope at that time. So what, what do you do if, what do you do if, if uh, you keep running these the scenarios? I mean, how, I mean, for a while, I think, don't you have to tell them for a while or, or, or get them in context? And, and what if I'm still running it six months to a year later? Well, that is even normal because sometimes we don't even have symptoms that emerge till way after the fact. Sometimes um, offices or other folks that work in areas of emergency response um, may not even have time to pause because they get so active and involved in this lifestyle. In fact, um, one of the profiles that I talk about is officers that um, become addicted to trauma. And by addicted, um, I mean they have become responsive to dealing with rescue situations one after the other and not even have um, a time to pause and stop and reflect and direct their attention to what's going on. And so what happens is these losses, if we can visualize it, accumulate like a, a pile of, of dust and dust that becomes moldy and green and full of all kinds of ugly stuff that if we don't take care of, kind of wake us up with a tap on our shoulder at night, maybe when we go to sleep, or uh, offices who will get involved with drinking, drugging, not, or not drugging so much, but drinking and sex and all kinds of other stuff that keep them amused instead of really dealing with a loss. Dan, I think, yeah, I think that's really important. I want, I want to pause there because, wow, you just really hit something for me, is that when people are using, you know, they've had a trauma and they're using alcohol or sex or other addictions to, uh, as a distraction. I hadn't thought of that. Have you, Heidi? Well, and, and also using them to self-medicate because I think people, you know, like Dr. Dr. Dan works with and that are in the police department, they're constantly seeing one trauma after another. And I, I would just think it would just be a lot to handle. So what, so what if I'm doing that? How do I stop it? How do you get people to stop running the scenario? And, and, and by the way, Dan, I think one thing that's important that you've said is there's a normalcy to, I mean, it's time out. I mean, people can't all of a sudden get over it. In okay, now we, you've told your story once. Now let's, you know, get over it. it that's not the way it goes. Well, well there's two or three points here that are amazingly um, on the money and, 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 one of those aspects is the addiction that offices go to in place of working through um, the trauma. But let's even back up a little more. The other idea is normalcy. Um, when the culture is alexithymic or doesn't allow for emotions to be expressed or for the individual officer to say, hey, I'm not so okay. 
So the way that officers, for example, deal with it, or if we're talking about civilians who have dealt with a lot of trauma or losses, is say, well, that's Mary's problem, that's Joe's problem, but I'm okay, you know? Mm-hmm. Standard operating procedure, that's okay. So I'm okay, I'm, and, and, you know, I just got to get back to work, and that's just it. So the other aspect of addiction is that folks get so immersed in this culture of trauma and loss that they forget to stop and pause and reflect on their own losses. And therefore, in order to be able to do that, one has to understand that getting these repetitions um, of ideas and thoughts and visions, even scary visions and, and aspects that are related to trauma does not mean that you are crazy at all. And I would say one, one of the key aspects of working in my type of therapy with public safety and other folks is getting them to understand that they are not going crazy. That mm-hmm. that you know when these thoughts emerge, it's so disturbing and so scary that usually the avoidance aspect of it just makes it worse. So the first thing is realizing that it is okay to share with certain people that you can trust, that you could trust, um, and share what's going on with you. And and not to think because you may tell a peer, for example, hey, you know, I I I. I think I saw that person that we just saved, um, you know, um, with doing CPR or worse, I, I, I slept in and I woke up and I can see that person that died. Or, or officers, for example, having real bad terror dreams and waking up and thinking, oh my God, I'm dead. And then looking at their spouse, oh, I just had a bad dream, honey. I'm, I'm going back to sleep. Instead of ignoring it, talking about it, getting it out. Um, and not hiding it. So, you know, to share it with the one who you're closest to. You know what, Dan, important. I want to say one thing about that. When you, I, I just think we're learning so much on this show because you've seen it with officers. But I will tell you, we have worked a lot in the grief and loss field and talked to thousands of people. And one of the things that we talk to them about is finding a safe person to share, even out in the general public. You have to find safe people. Not everybody can hear this. Right, and, and and that's so key what you're saying, and I was actually alluding to that as well, to find somebody who's competent, and, and that even includes, and even though we're not even near there yet, when you go to a therapist, um, one like all of us here um, on this program who are culturally competent and capable of dealing with the material that is presented and not freaking out or minimizing or minimizing the loss, for example, as being a crybaby or being too emotional or not being able to handle it. Unlike we, in a police department, like in a fire department, the idea is like, let it roll off your shoulders like a duck's ass. And the reality, excuse the vernacular, is that somehow we're supposed to just discard um, what is and and what really is very difficult to handle. Um, when you're in the heat of the moment and you're trying to rescue somebody who's dying, that is a human being and a life. Yet officers are taught to what I call adaptively, functionally dissociate. The adaptive part is I have to adapt in terms of my survival motivation to function as an officer. Just like with physician, nurses, social workers, case workers, and psychologists, psychiatrists, 
Um, we all have to deal with situations that occur in quote-unquote being professional. But the myth that's very poor, and I would say even destructive, is that somehow that dissociation um, ought not to be looked at or get through it. Well, you're a doc. You're a cop. You're a, a nurse. Yeah. This is yeah. what you have to it. Right. You have to get through it. Well, I think that also um, it's important, and Heidi's talked about this before, in finding a therapist that can deal with the material you bring them, right, Heidi? Oh, absolutely. And, and Dr. Dan kind of, yes, alluded to that. And, and yes, yeah, somebody that can hear this stuff. And, and like you said, Dr. Dan, a lot of what is going on is to normalize it for people because sometimes when you are you know, experiencing the trauma and thinking about it and having all these night terrors and these visions, you do think you're going crazy. And like you said, to normalize it for people and say, wait a minute, this is part of working through the traumatic narrative, et cetera. And, and I like the idea of giving people permission to talk about it because, as you said, these police officers have been given messages of suck it up, walk it off, be a man, repress you know, don't show any feelings, don't talk about it, because that's a sign of weakness. And I'm wondering, how do you get cops into your office? How do you get cops to a place where they feel like, okay, you know what, it's okay to talk about it. It's, this is, it's okay to show my emotions. Well, Dr. Heidi, the, the way that I do that is often through peer support, like another office is saying, hey, why don't you go to Dr. Dan? You know, he's a, he was a cop who understands. And at that point, somebody, you know, or an officer will be more likely to open up, an EMT, a firefighter, an agent, uh, anybody in the public safety or service field, more likely to. But there's a caveat or a warning with that, too. You know, this is toxic stuff. And some of the myths that are around, unfortunately, is that, um, for example, officers being pushed to go to um, stress debriefing or critical incident stress management or debriefings as it's called differently in different departments and so on, which is great for many, but some who have been through repetitive, complex traumas that have not been worked through and have accumulated for years um, will, will be very less, or less likely to talk about it because the feelings are so intense and bottled up so that the um, officers who may be even really itching to get out stuff may get it out differently by almost acting out, like getting really angry, irritable, saying this is bullshit, psychobabble, I don't need to discuss this, I'm absolutely fine, and I've been doing this for years, and I appreciate it, great stuff. Not for me. You know, Dan, and let me say, right. let me interrupt you for a minute there because this is an important point. Because I am thinking as a therapist, Heidi, and I'm sure you are, if you have a client come in who has had trauma that they haven't dealt with in the past and say, sometimes um, I know family members try to force people to go into therapy and that may not want to, and it may be because of an accumulation of past losses. It's an interesting thought, isn't it, Heidi? Absolutely, and I see it sometimes with teenagers, especially teenage boys that parents force them to come in here. They don't show, you know, they're not crying, but they're angry and irritable. And like you said, that may be how they're expressing what's happened with them. That's a safe place to be and, made, and, is in that anger space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and, and that is a great point, right. You know, Dan, before we, I, I want to get to something before uh, in our time here, and that is Heidi and I were saying before, oh, wow, you must know a lot about how males grieve, yeah. <laughs> like it was some group. And I wanted you to comment on that a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, um, males are as different, um, I guess, as any other population. And even if you look at it this way, too, in the human population at gender call male, uh, we, we've been taught to uh, not express emotions or to meet up to standards that are stereotypical about males. Um, you know, I, I've had um, men come in with very different emotional um, expressions of loss, some who have just come out with it. In fact, some who will give you a, a stream of losses and trauma, but that too could be a distraction for not really dealing with the underlying emotional weight of what is really pressing. And oftentimes, too, you know, as you both are sharing me, um, men can come in, especially in a culture, and women, I should say, as well, who are offices, in believing that they have to, um, you know, kind of bottle it up and be firm and be strong. And, in fact, with female offices, just to add on for a moment, some of them, too, not only hide it, but want to overcompensate by showing that they're not going to be like the terrible female stereotype and terrible male stereotype of an officer that one should, you know, um, again, be tough, austere, and a misinterpretation of stoicism. Um, in other words, to just um, be tight-lipped and chest or breast out and um, kind of suck it up and, and be tough. And, you know, what, what I share, uh, usually that's very helpful, is to talk about um, losses and the impact of it and to even bring up an example from my own um, experiences where stuff that one goes through is not just standard operating procedure, but I usually don't move by um, just tackling it. It takes time to unravel. Oh, I, I like that, Dan, uh, the time to unravel. I, I think that's really, really important, the, the time. And, and thank you for making that comment about men. I, th- I think it's really important, don't you, Heidi? Absolutely. And, and I think if we push people to try to, like he said, it takes time we push people too hard, they'll push back and oftentimes shut down. Yeah. Well, Dan, um, we're going to have to close the show right now, and I want to tell people where to find you and uh, where to get your books, and you have a website for us? Um, yes. Well, I'll tell you, folks just put in um, Dr. Dan Ritofossi, that's R-U-D-O-F-O-S-S-I, in a Google or any search engine. A number of the books will come up. And this way they'll be able to select uh, which one to go to. All right. Uh, you know, there's a number that are out, including, um, you know, depending upon their field, working with traumatized police patients, or the um, follow-up to that is um, uh, Top Doc's Guide, was using five police personality solves. Um, uh, another one that came out besides I'm a complex guide to understanding terrorism is human evil, healing from complex trauma syndromes from military police and public safety officers and their families is a street survival guide for public safety officers, which is really written um, to officers and in their language. 
and that includes police, EMTs, firefighters, and I would say any first responders, including caseworkers, social workers, psychologists, psychologists, ER physicians. Don't forget I nurses. Like I'm a nurse. Yes. <laughs> Especially emergency room nurses. Wow. They really take it on the nose. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, listen, Dan, thank you so much for being on the show, and we're looking forward to having you on our TV show. My pleasure, and thank you so much for having me here. Thanks, Dr. Dan. I can't wait to meet you. (laughs) Yes, same here. Thank you. (laughs) Well, Heidi, it was great having Dr. Dan on the show. You know, he's just... There's a wealth of information here that I, I know he focuses on the police, but oh, there's so much to be learned from, from all of his research and all that he's done, isn't there? There is, and I really can't stress enough that I love the fact that he was a New York police officer and he's a psychologist because he has one foot in both worlds. And like he said, not he doesn't just understand the world of an NYPD, he understands the world of anyone that is a first responder. And there's a lot of first responders out there in the world, including, like you said, Mom, nurses in the ER. Right. And, and also, you know, our folks out there that are listening to the show who were first responders, they didn't want to be a first responder, but they ended up there when someone they knew, uh, you know, they had to do CPR or whatever they had to do, and they didn't make it. I mean... You know, you're not prepared for that kind of trauma at all. So our heart goes out to everyone who has had that kind of trauma in their life. And uh, we hope that you will tell friends and family about this show and about the work that Dr. Dan's doing. So uh, thanks for listening today and uh, tune in again next week. And God bless. You've been listening to Open to Hope Radio, hosted by Drs. Gloria and Heidi Horsley. Like today's edition, all of our past programs are available on demand at opentohope.com, along with helpful articles, videos, resources, and links to help get you through the toughest time of your life. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Again, that's opentohope.com. Check it out today. Then be sure to stop by next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time when we'll be posting another edition of Open to Hope Radio. Remember, Others have been where you are. They made it through, and you can too, as long as you're open to hope.